Reading, short and deep. Hi, I'm Jesse. And I'm Eric. And today we're reading Short and Deep, Casey at the Bat, by Ernest Lawrence Thayer. Uh, first published in the San Francisco Examiner, although it didn't have that title at the time, June 3rd, 1888. It was the Daily Examiner at that time. This is, happens with magazines. They change their name. It's Saturday Evening Post, published Poe, except it wasn't called the Saturday Evening Post at the time. Um, this is arguably the most famous poem in uh, the United States. Huh. And gee, I was thinking maybe Amazing Grace, but okay. Yeah, uh, so it, it depends, right? Like, um, if you consider songs, poems, um, there's certainly songs that are rival it. But this is a this is a genuinely popular poem with not just you know academics who enjoy reading poems in circles. <laughs> I don't know, but this is one that is performed, right, annually and has been adapted to film many times in comic books and television and theater, and there's yeah. many, many parodies and sequels and claims to who wrote it, and it's just, it's subject to endless attention, and I think it's because of the poem, um, being, and perhaps because it's written by... Uh, a great sports writer. The sports writing is a very hard business, in my view, because you're writing about the same stuff over and over again, and you have to write it different ways. And he does that in here. But uh, it's also really interesting that none of the um, the metaphors that are so well sprinkled through our modern vocabulary uh, that come from baseball aren't present here. But there are many wonderful things happening within the poem itself anyway. So I was thinking about how, you know, it was a real hit. <laughs> or I, uh, it was a home run. Or I got to third base. <laughs> you know? um, there's a lot of metaphors that come from, from baseball that are still in the vocabulary, even if the sport is not it, it, as it one, was once the most popular sport. The, the language remains. This is... Uh, true with sailing right all the sailing metaphors learning the ropes and um such that come from the english being so good at sailing and having such a big navy have penetrated the language and are still around uh baseball has such metaphors but i don't find a lot of them present here which is interesting and yet, of course this was uh, earlier in the history of baseball it was it was. Uh, it, it's funny because we think of baseball sort of coming out of the early, very early 20th century, but it's actually very old. Um, it's just as codified and sort of becoming super popular. Uh, it's it, it's really surprising that even 1888 is is uh, is it's a national sport in a certain sense. Certainly, there there are leagues. I mean, there's mm -hmm. obviously established competitions and and that's one of the things that this is about i think it's also about um why it is that or at least it presumes um enormous corporate identification mm -hmm. i mean 
Why in, well, we'll get to the end, but uh, because the last answer is terrific. The last lines are wonderful. But um, I often wondered, uh, you know, when I see somebody the day after uh, the University of Michigan had uh, played uh, successfully in a football game and they'd say, it's great that we won yesterday, wasn't it? Mm. And I'm thinking, what do you mean we? You know, I mean, if I'd been on that field, I'd be dead now. I've, I've, I've seen those guys and they are much larger than I am. You know, I mean, I would never. What do you mean we won or we lost? Mm-hmm. Yet there is that sense of corporate identification that sports allows. In fact, it fosters and counts on for merchandising, for jokes. I mean, if you were to ask someone what is locker room conversation, Maybe sex would come up, but certainly sports. Mm-hmm. So and it's not just because people go to locker rooms when they're involved in physical activity. It's just, it, you know, the loads of people turn to the sports pages first. Mm-hmm. It's paper. Well, if they read a newspaper at all. So there's a lot going on in sport in general. And this is a particular sport. And maybe we should. Uh, well, tell us a little more about Thayer. Right? So that will help understand the, the Daily Examiner was not, in fact, a. a magazine it was a it was daily it was a newspaper mm-hmm. yeah right? uh san so, francisco examiners is still a paper uh, still a going concern and it's um it's it's a very notable newspaper uh, jack london was published in it right um this is uh, a big that was, a big deal that was the beginning of that was the beginning of hearst's empire mm. has all kinds of dark sides to it as well yeah yeah, uh, as any anything with that sort of endurance will, there's a lot of scandal, and uh, I, it's interesting because this has almost got a scandal within it too, uh, I, arguably. And other versions of the poem have all that. But um, Thayer was—I'm I'm not an expert on him. I'm not an expert on sports writing, but I, I tend to admire the writing and not so much the subject. Um, but <laughs> this is his biggest contribution to literature um, that's enduring. But um, it was just something he did uh, sort of unrelated to his regular work, which is writing sports, writing about sports. Uh, it says he's a poet as his occupation. Um, I don't think you can get paid for that. <laughs> No, um, uh, you didn't happen to. You're so good at these bibliographic things. Did you happen to find out? What else was in the newspaper the day this was published? I mean, no, was this I, I couldn't get a copy of the actual Francisco paper. Yeah, no, I couldn't. I couldn't get a, a a copy of the actual paper. I did. Um, you know, there's questions as to who this Mudville. I mean, there are two towns in the United States that claim to be Mudville. Uh, one of them is in California. It's near Stockton, uh, or it is part of Stockton, California. And then uh, there's another one. Where near where Thayer grew up, that had uh, uh, prior, I, be, I believe it was prior to its incorporation, was colloquially called Mudville, or it might be vice versa. Um, but neither, according to Thayer, neither of them are where he got Mudville from. And and there's also questions like who is who is the mighty Casey, right? And he right. he had a friend who was a a, a very popular baseball player, uh, I think named Kelly. Um, which would fit with the Irish sort of name. But 
he just said it. Uh, it's it's no one in particular, right? Um, oh, I think that's right. I think I think it is, however, somebody uh, a stereotype in, that's quite significant. Oh yes, I, uh, I the names I think are significant, and um, uh, he is. Pl- uh, what's so great about this poem, which we should read, um, is the trickery he's he's using to make it so good and so memorable. Um, people like to read it, but I'm not sure they know why they like it. I didn't know why I liked it when I heard it. I probably heard it in the Disney version uh, first, which is much um, flourished with visuals. But uh, It also adds material. It makes it Casey does. into a ladies' man, which is not in the poem. It does, Exactly. And, you know, it, there's... <laughs> There's no evidence that he, uh, you know, has a mustache. And there's an Elliot Gould uh, version uh, where he gets fat, fatter and fatter, and become, resembles a more um, uh, later stereotypes about baseball players. Yeah. Um, by the way, I've always thought, well, not always, but ever since I first saw Emeryville, which is uh, now it's getting developed because real estate is so significant and costly in the San Francisco Bay Area. Uh, Emeryville, which is on San Francisco Bay, for a long time was basically unoccupied except for people in in, uh, squatter shacks because it's Mm mudflats. And I've always thought since I first saw Emeryville, that which is not doesn't look that way now, but I saw it many years ago. Um, I, I thought that Mudville was a name that he picked up derisively because he was looking down on the lower class, which I think, in fact, is something that's going on in this poem. But maybe we should read it first. Definitely. And then, OK. Yes. All right. Would you do the honors for us? It would be my distinct pleasure. We don't need the national anthem, though. They didn't play it before games in those days. Right. It looked extremely rocky for the Mudville nine that day. The score stood two to four with but an inning left to play. So when Cooney died at second and Burroughs did the same, a pallor wreathed the features of the patrons of the game. A straggling few got up to go, leaving there the rest with that hope which springs eternal within the human breast, for they thought, if only Casey could get a whack at that, they'd put up even money now with Casey at the bat. But Flynn preceded Casey, and likewise so did Blake, Then the former was a puddin' and the latter was a fake. So on that stricken multitude a death-like silence sat, for there seemed but little chance of Casey's getting to the bat. But Flynn let drive a single to the wonderment of all, and the much-despised Blakey tore the cover off the ball. And when the dust had lifted and they saw what had occurred, there was Blakey safe at second and Flynn a hug in third. Then from the gladdened multitude went up a joyous yell. It rumbled in the mountaintops. It rattled in the dell. It struck upon the hillside and rebounded on the flat for Casey, mighty Casey, was advancing to the bat. There was ease in Casey's manner as he stepped into his place. There was pride in Casey's bearing 
and a smile on Casey's face. And when, responding to the cheers, he lightly doffed his hat, no stranger in the crowd could doubt, "'Twas Casey at the bat. Ten thousand eyes were on him as he rubbed his hands with dirt. Five thousand tongues applauded when he wiped them on his shirt. Then when the writhing pitcher ground the ball into his hip, defiance gleamed in Casey's eye. A sneer curled Casey's lip. And now the leather-covered sphere came hurtling through the air, and cursed Casey stood a-watching it in mighty grandeur there. Close by the sturdy batsman, the ball unheeded sped. That ain't my style, said Casey. Strike one, the umpire said. The umpire said. From the benches, black with people, there went up a muffled roar, like the beating of a storm waves on the stern and distant shore. Kill him, kill the umpire, shouted someone on the stand, and it's like they'd have killed him had not Casey raised his hand. With a smile of Christian charity, great Casey's visage, visage shone. He stilled the rising tumult. He made the game go on. He signaled to the pitcher, and once more the spheroid flew, but Casey still ignored it, and the umpire said, Strike two! Fraud! yelled the maddened thousands, and the echo answered, Fraud! But one scornful look from Casey, and the audience was awed. They saw the face grow stern and cold. They saw his muscles strain, and they knew that Casey wouldn't let the ball go by again. The sneer is gone from Casey's lips. His teeth are clenched in hate. He pounds with cruel vengeance his bat upon the plate, and now the pitcher holds the ball, and now he lets it go, and now the air is shattered by the force of Casey's blow. Oh, somewhere in this favored land, the sun is shining bright. The band is playing somewhere, and somewhere hearts are light, and somewhere men are laughing, and somewhere children shout. But there is no joy in Mudville. Mighty Casey has struck out. <laughs> yep. <laughs> uh, the very first thing that strikes me as, as really interesting about this poem uh, structurally is that it's all past tense until a certain point, And then it becomes present tense. So it's all about the anticipation, right? Suddenly we realize, oh, this isn't all uh, happening in the past. Um, and that's really what the poem is about. It's about the anticipation, right? From the very beginning, it looked extremely rocky for the Mudville Nine that day. The score stood two to four with but an inning left to play. So it's the bottom of the ninth, as they say, right? <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Um, so when Cooney died at second, the great metaphor, and Burroughs did the same, a pallor wreathed the features of the patrons of the game. Uh-oh. But we got all this poem left. There's got to be something. A straggling few got up to go, leaving there the rest with the hope which springs eternal within the human breast. These are kind of um, very broad metaphors and fun, <laughs> sort of for the you know general reader metaphors which is lovely um 
for the thought they thought and then this is the strange part right there's a collective thought everybody is always collective every once in a while somebody will say something that the crowd thinks right and echoes but they all think together if only casey could get a whack at that they put up even money now who is they this is the audience Right, if they're betting on the game, they put up even money now with Casey at the bat. We can win. In fact, even though we're down, we could win. Right? <laughs> this yeah. is sports betting already. It's right in there. Um, I, I just want to note um, yeah. so many good things in this poem and in what you've already said. That wor- the wording here is a little odd, and I don't know to what extent it's an oddity. Sometimes I don't know to what extent it's an oddity of the poem mm-hmm. and to what extent it's an oddity of the era in which the language is being used. We would not call attendees at a spectacle an audience. We would call them spectators, mm. right? Right. An audience audits. They hear. You don't tend to hear a baseball game. You tend to watch it. Um, and yet this is an audience. Uh, I, I don't know whether the word was commonly used for attendees at a sporting event in uh, in those days mm-hmm. or if it says something about the the poem really being in part about about language, about straining to hear something. I mean, it's a very auditory poem, mm-hmm. right? The shout goes up. There's the whoosh of the bat. There's the you can hear the ball go by. And, and then when we talk at the end about how things are different other places, the band is playing. Men are laughing. It's an incredibly auditory poem, mm-hmm. uh, especially when you consider that it's about something that gets watched, not really heard. I mean, it, it gets heard if you're in the crowd, but you're hearing the crowd, not the game. Just strikes me as interesting. Is that? Is oh, that yeah. Uh, I mean, we are the audience, right? No one actually saw this game. (laughs) This is a non-existent game, right? There's no Mudville. There's no Casey. Um, We are the audience, and we're listening. He's he's playing a game with us, and he's he's treating us like a puppet, and we're dancing along to it, and we're enjoying it. Yeah. It's interesting. uh, uh, Somewhere in this, I believe it's this version as well, um, they're called Patrons. As well, yes. which again is not something we'd normally think of, uh, you know, viewers of a baseball game. But audience is certainly the word we would use when people are listening to the game on the radio, which to me has always struck me as a strange thing. People listening to hockey games. <laughs> <laughs> but in adaptations of this, um, they've got the color, you know, the color guys, the guys who come in and give that color to the description for those who are not at the game. And it is an experience, right? It is a, you know, there's a wonderful experience of hearing the story of the game. Clearly. And and there is the experience of hearing this poem. Uh, that is, uh, as you say, it's the bottom of the ninth. So what the bases this are loaded. <laughs> exactly. Well, well actually, two of the bases are loaded. Yeah. Yeah, well, that's not what <laughs> there are runners on two of the bases. <laughs> um, what what this poem does, uh, the, the control of 
tempo is terrific. Mm -hmm. It brings us to the crucial moment at the end of the game, as if we had been going through all of those preceding innings, mm-hmm. right? So it starts us. We know that Mudville is behind, right? Um, and then we get things going faster and faster and faster, or I should say slower and slower. That is, we get more detail about what's happening the closer we get to the end. So that that final whoosh, Casey's blow, the force of Casey's blow becomes the penultimate thing. It just, bam, it lets off everything that's been building up. In fact, the first half of the poem is getting us there. The second half of the poem is the uh, the, the three pitches uh, and the two non and one swing. So the control of the tempo is terrific mm-hmm. in this poem. I can see why people would like to perform it. Oh, yeah. You really can just throw your body into it. I Again, also think that – I think it's fascinating that this is a – this is – also a poem of a loser right like it's why is it so popular it's not you know we always think about how uh winning is really popular but baseball you know for many years there are very popular teams in the sense that people follow them religiously almost um and their team doesn't make the world series every year right for a hundred years they don't make the the and and the viewers are complaining about what the you know, the coaches and the owners and the managers are doing wrong and who, you know, what they should be doing instead. This is a, this is all that anticipation put into this this guy who's going to save the day. And he's seemingly he's adopted this, too. Right. He, I don't need to swing at that <laughs> first one. Right. It's not my style. That's not my style. I love like, can they hear him in the audience say that's not my style? Or does he just shake his head? It's up to an interpretation. Right. And 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 I love that. We're, this is actually sort of I, I, I can't imagine that they would have color commentary live at the games loud enough that everybody could hear it in in, in 1888. Right. Even, oh, but they can see his sneer, and they can see him raise his hand and doff his hat. Right, and so on. right. And and at one point, when uh, if you were a stranger in the audience, they would certainly know that that must be Casey um, when he doffs his hat, and and when they're calling for Casey, right? Even the strangers right. would know if you're uh, on the the opposing team and you're following them, and you came to town. Uh, these are this is the home team, right? You would think, uh, oh, that's Ka- that's the Casey they're always talking about, the great man. If only Casey could get a swing at that. Right? <laughs> and then what happens? He strikes out. <laughs> that's not that's not the American winning, right? You know. No, it's it's not the American winning. But there are a couple of other things here. One of them I like, and one of them I must say I. Uh, I'm repelled by that I think are also relevant to why this poem captures imagination so much. One of the reasons it captures the imagination is that it has captured the imagination. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That is to say, when you first learn it, when one first learns it, one learns it as an already famous poem. That wasn't the case in 1888, but it's the case now. When I was a boy, um, my father enacted Casey at the bat at the dinner table. Right. He, he enjoyed every now and then reading a poem histrionically, and this is one that he enjoyed doing. I can see why. So when I first heard 
Casey at the bat, it was already a performance piece that was part of my culture. Mm -hmm. Now, the question then becomes, how does it get to be a performance piece as part of our culture? And, you know, we've already talked a bit about um, the way it switches from past tense to present tense, the way the timing of this narrative structure leads to that enormous explosion. Uh, But I think it's important not simply to say that that he's a loser, but in fact, pride goeth before a fall. Mm-hmm. Right? Casey demonstrates what is called explicitly Christian charity, but we know that his smile of Christian charity, in fact, is fake. Right? It's it's hubris. <laughs> you know, oh, don't worry, crowd, don't worry, don't worry. It's not a smile of Christian charity. It is the facade of Christian charity for someone who has the sin of pride. And the people of Mudville, by associating themselves so explicitly and thoroughly that they would bet money right, on this with, with Casey, they themselves show a kind of pride. So when pride goeth before the fall, what we're getting in this is a humorous version of a very important message that is widespread in the preaching in Christian America. Right? That th- this is a a homily about not being too cocksure. <laughs> God may have given you talents, but watch what you do. So I think that's one reason, and I kind of like that. You know that that we get to laugh at it, but it's an important lesson. Don't be so darn sure. Don't just think it's easy. Um, that's important. And there's a second, however, that um, disturbs me. You notice the names, mm-hmm. uh, A.C., Blake, Flynn. Um, Burroughs. Yep. This is, this is um, 1888. This is a period in which all across America, you can still see signs in store and shop window, uh, store and factory windows saying no Irish need apply. Mm -hmm. And just as today, a huge number of the the outstanding baseball players are drawn from minority groups, marginalized minority groups. Um, deprecated minority groups, so too in this poem we see baseball players who are part of minority groups. And I don't believe that those 10,000 eyes who are watching Casey are all Irish immigrants. I think just like today, the, the professional athletes are paid entertainers to allow vicarious combat by the the white majority. And they were counting on their guy to do it for them. And then he didn't. So Mighty Casey didn't just strike out for Mudville. The last line of the poem, there is no joy. It was not, there is no joy in Mudville. The last line is Mighty Casey has struck out. Mm-hmm. It It tells us we can't really rely on those folks. On the other hand, we are implicated in having relied on them because we are the supportive crowd that makes this all possible. Uh, but but to see this uh, class and race issue underlying this poem, boy, that's not something my father ever thought about when he was performing it. No. But I, I do believe it's there. I think it is, in fact, part of the national pastime. And I think that Thayer 
is attuned to how baseball works in the corporate psyche. Yeah, he's making he's he's making a satire of the sport that he, uh, presumably he loves, but also the one he writes about. And it makes me think about how how this anticipation all built up, right? All towards it's it's if only Casey could get up to bat and then he strikes out. Um, uh, my understanding is that in baseball, if you bat 500, which is you hit one out of every two, <laughs> nobody bats 500. Exactly, you would be nobody. doing great, right? So, well, it, they put even money on uh, on the game, even though they're down by two runs. Um, if Casey could get up, right? And so, how great must he be? Well, he. You know, if you looked at if Casey were a real player and you looked at his statistics, um, it wouldn't be you know bats 500. It would be you know something less than that. Uh, I think if you get a, a third of your hits, you, you you're still a pretty great player, right? Um, actually, the way I, I am not a base uh, a sports follower, but I happen to remember from my youth learning that, and maybe I've got this a little bit wrong, but Ted Williams had the highest. Mm-hmm batting average that anyone ever achieved for a season and it was 412 right right in fact if you can consistently bat over 200 meaning more than one out of five times you get a hit Mm -hmm. um, that makes you a very valuable player in the in the big leagues Mm -hmm. so to, to bet even money on someone who would have at best a four in 10 chance of connecting is again, a sign of pride. Yep. It's a sign of pride. But then don't we all, you know, have that, gee, you know, go team. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I find it personally um, disturbing when an athlete gives a superb performance, say in gymnastics and you, you realize the the years of dedication and, and discipline and suffering and, that goes into having trained a natural talent into something superhuman and the people in the stands go USA, USA, <laughs> you know, yeah. how just, how about just praise for the athlete, you know, I mean, but no, we, we want to attach ourselves to this in a very uh, powerful way. Um, the Nobel prizes, there was a pic, you know, they're being, um, awarded as it happens this day that you and I are recording this podcast. And there's a newspaper picture of a, a prior um, news conference. And there it has the the names of the winners and their nation. Mm-hmm. It doesn't even have the name of the, the field in which they're getting the award. <laughs> I mean, this, this idea of corporate identification is so powerful. And yet what makes this such a persistently valuable poem, not just fun, it is fun, gosh, it is. But what makes it a valuable poem is it's a corrective to that. Mm-hmm. That's why I think uh, when it comes to something that initially looks light, lightweight, there really is always more to say. And remember... You can always freely access the materials discussed on these podcasts by going to sffaudio.com and clicking on the link for Reading Short and Deep.